From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to one hour of sports analytics, a new format in the last couple of weeks, scrunching Wharton Moneyball down to now we're going to get a little different distribution, a little broader distribution as a result. Same host, same format, same interviews, same coverage. This is Kate Masseosin this week with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen is here. Adi Weiner is here. We're going to go open topics in this first segment before moving into an interview in the second segment. Interview is going to be with Matt Corshane. Matt is a founder of Data Golf. This being a U.S. Open week, we thought we'd pull someone in who could talk a little golf analytics. We do that in the second half of the show. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. It's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording in our usual segment. Show will go up on Wednesday morning, be posted in around, um, get our podcast up as well. We are winding up the flurry of championship activity that comes around every spring. It's been a rich spring for that this year. We wrapped up one of them last night. Any thoughts on the Nuggets Heat series? The Nuggets closed out the Heat in game six last night. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I game think five? Game five. They did it. It was game, game five. five. Yeah, game five. Game five. Um, I think the sense for most people, and this is, was my analytics, one of my analytics questions for the week, we can obviously measure the number of wins of the team the Nuggets beat, right? So they played the Timberwolves to start with. Then they played the Suns, then they played the Lakers, and then they played the Heat. So those teams had, not in that order, but 42, 43, 44, and 45 wins this season. So they didn't beat, by many people's standards, they didn't beat any of the top teams in the league this year. Doesn't mean they didn't beat the teams that beat the top teams this year, but they didn't beat any of the top teams. So I have to admit, what was going on on Twitter, and I was texting and trying to post as much as I could last night. I just don't think these two teams were good. So the analytics question I had was (laughs) besides looking at the number of wins of the teams they beat. And my guess is for any champion in this format, this may be the lowest sum. I'll I'll guarantee you it's the lowest maximum. No one has ever won the NBA title with not beating a team with more than 45 wins. I can guarantee you in this format, that's not happened. But Eric, so this this is kind of this interesting mix of regular season matters, regular season doesn't matter because the Denver was the number one seed out of the West. And so they, they showed over the course of the season that they were good. But then interestingly, two of the teams they beat in the playoffs really didn't round into form until the end of the year. And in, for those teams, the Suns and the Lakers, I don't think anybody thinks the regular season record was representative of the strength that they had when the playoffs rolled around. I mean, no. Davis was out much of the season and Durant was on the East coast for much of the season. So those were two, they were, I don't, we can look at the betting odds, but I bet they were at, you know, not maybe 50, 50, even underdogs in those series, given the strength of the Suns and, and the and you're reinforcing, Yeah. You're reinforcing and making my point, which is that um, I've just chosen a really bad metric which is the number of regular season wins or even the maximum of the distribution of the four teams they beat. And that's probably not a good metric. We're an analytics show. So I was just going to throw out there to the group, how else might you measure the quality of the teams they beat or how good this team was compared to, let's say, Golden State last year or somebody else? And would you factor in anything? Like, do you think the calculation should factor in kind of how dominant they were in this playoff run? Because it is worth noting. I mean, they may not have been playing world beater teams, but they rolled through them. I think they lost four games right, in the playoffs total. Yep. So something has to be said. I mean, you can only you can't control who you play, and they certainly dominated who they played. I, I just I, so I, now, I think that has to kind of be part of the calculation. Actually, you have, you've given me another great metric, Shane. So what does it? What would the strength be of a team? Let's even say the teams they played had a 55% winning percentage. What does? How good is a team that has an 80% winning percentage against teams with a 55% winning percentage? That's another interesting metric. Like what would be the implied strength of that team? It may well be into the 70s, like in the 70 plus percent winning percentage, which is what they basically did in the regular season. Uh, matter of fact, I guarantee you in the regular season against winning teams, they didn't win 80% of their games. So they may have played even better in the playoffs than they did during the regular season. 
What do you guys think is the most surprising aspects of the playoffs from start to finish? Is it the Heat getting as far as it did? Is it Celtics and the Bucks losing, or is it Denver winning? Which one? To me, it's the Heat. It's the Heat going to the finals and yeah. the Heat beating both the Bucks and the Celtics. Let's not forget, as much as I want to poo-poo the Heat, by the way, um, they did beat everybody's prediction of the top two teams in the NBA on the way to the yeah. finals. To me, I don't know about Shane, but that was the most surprising. And, and, and so it was kind of boring at the end because we kind of had regression to the mean, more or less. We don't yeah, know if right. regression to the mean or whether the Nuggets are that good, which is kind of Eric's question. Yeah. Or, no, and I do think of it. I do think one thing, like one reason you might expect that a, a team could could do kind of like I guess unexpectedly well in the playoffs, specifically versus the regular season, is you know we've talked a lot about over a series. You know, I mean, you, you know, it, it's it's a different dynamic where you get to kind of you know learn and explore weaknesses weaknesses in a more kind of up you know game by game way. So, like, I think a team with an excellent coaching staff, for example, might actually be more you know if there's kind of a might do better in like a playoff series where they can kind of adapt and plan game to game, as opposed to in a regular season, there's, there isn't that level of adaptation and planning just because you're hitting a different opponent, basically every game. Yep. The other possibility of course, is, you know, this is why it's a hard, also a hard question to answer is that um, there could be matchup effects. Like it, it, it could be that the heat just don't match up well against um you know, the, the the Nuggets, that's one possibility as well. It could also be fatigue. You know, the Heat didn't, on the other hand, go 16-4 and four in the playoffs, including a seven-game series. They just came off against the Celtics. And so, you know, part of it, I don't know about you guys, but Jimmy Butler didn't look like the same Jimmy Butler from a week or two prior. I'm not saying they would have won the series. All I'm saying is this is why it's a hard – that's why I asked it. It's a hard statistical problem to adjust for – fatigue, matchups, quality of the other team, et cetera. Is, Eric, could you, could you imagine an, an ELO model that is sufficiently recently based to give you a, a, a run at this? So like what if, you, well, one, you could first just consider the basic ELO model. You know, we do this, we do this to compare tennis players, for example, like who's had the highest ELO rating in the history of tennis, because they do eventually over time, you know, overlap. And so you can make these assessments. Could you not do that with ELO and the NBA playoffs to just kind of judge where you, where we ended up thinking the nuggets were, but again, especially it's really recent. We have to say, look, the playoffs are different than the regular season. I don't know if we have enough data to allow good estimation if we're that recent, but would that begin to address the question you're, trying to get into? Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I think, you know, if you think about an ELO model, the basic ELO model, it just says there's a latent strength parameter, right, for either team, right? Um, That doesn't have to be stationary. There could be a subscript T on it for time, allowing it to be non-stationary. What we're also talking about is we could put covariates in that ELO model. In other words, how many games have they already played? And, you know, uh, how much player minutes? You know, if you think about it, I think what Massey Peabody does in the NFL, you build a model, I think, for offensive and defensive strength. There's factors that go into that. There are strength parameters that come into it. And those, you know, go together into a team strength and a winning probability. You could do the same with an ELO model, have a time. Matter of fact, someone we all know well, Mark Lickman, his dissertation work was a dynamic version of an ELO, a paired comparison model. Now, what do you allow to vary over time and what variables do you use? In his case, it was around chess, but it puts more weight on recent games. It puts other covariates in there. That would be a very reasonable thing to do. I would like, I'd like to see that. You know, when you think about ELO, it's a great advantage is its simplicity. And, and it really is supposed to be a, um, a framework for dealing with the non-stationarity. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it at all. If you assume teams are, 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 are fixed strength, you don't want to build a, a, a updating model. You want to batch run. Um, with maybe some weights or na- and attributes. So it really is exactly right for changing performance. So in tennis, pen players, are they change over time. I'm not sure it's the right thing for basketball. Not enough games. Um, and really, and because not enough games, the, and, and you're trying to model non-stationarity, you probably want to go directly at it rather than try to slowly adapt to it. 
All right. So the the folks who do use a form of ELO, I believe, at least they historically did, their Raptor, 538's Raptor model may be a little less ELO-esque or it may just be more complicated ELO. They end up with the Nuggets as the top-rated team. You know, you don't, you don't always. It's not a given that the champion will be the top-rated team. But they also have a rating, 722. We could look at 538's historical ratings to see where 722 compares. And just for example, what are the numbers on the other teams, the Celtics, who didn't make it out of the East, are set or the second highest at 714. The Heat, who made the finals, are at 1639, which puts them way down the list, like sixth highest in the league, or maybe even lower, maybe seventh. And so that's they're doing something like what we're talking about. And it's a, a way, if we looked at more broadly, a way to compare across years. Let's move from one Serbian champ to another Serbian champ. We have Djokovic winning his 23rd Grand Slam, also over the weekend winning the French, our resident tennis expert. I think we can probably get a few minutes from our resident tennis expert on Djokovic's 23rd. Well, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, because I've never been a massive fan of Djokovic, um, he now has to be considered the greatest of all time. I, I don't think there's any ambiguity about it. Um, I was trying to search for a metric, any statistics summary of the data that he would not be considered the greatest of all time. So he's got the most majors. That's a simple metric. The only would be he didn't win as many tournaments. He didn't play for as long yet as Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors has the most tournament wins of all time. Um, he has a winning record against Nadal. He had a slight 30 and 29, but he has a winning record against Federer. I think it's 24 and 16. Um, he's got the most Masters 1000 events of all time. Um, he's been number one the most weeks of all time. So I was trying to search for a credible metric that makes him not the greatest of all time. Um, and the way I would frame it, this is the way I think of it. You know, there's three major surfaces in tennis. Quickly, there's clay. Nadal's the greatest on clay. No one doubts that. Um, there's grass. I think you'd have to say Federer or Sampras is the greatest on grass. There's hard courts. Djokovic has clearly won the most hard court majors and tournaments of anyone. But here's the thing. Djokovic is also really great on grass and really great on clay. And Federer was okay on clay, but if, you know, Robin Soderling hadn't beaten uh, Nadal in a fluke, Federer would have zero French Open titles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think um, Djokovic has won four or five straight Wimbledons, and so he's no slouch at Wimbledon either. And so that, to me, is why he's the greatest, because he's great on all the surfaces. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, for it's kind of a great lesson. If, if you look at like kind of the different, um, uh, like the different surfaces or whatever. If you want to kind of just look at like majors and and you said, oh well, I don't want I don't want one surface dominating. Take the median instead of the total, and he's not. It's not even close. I think he like just kind of eyeballing it. What do you mean also, median? What do you mean? So, so like basically, you know, he's won ten Australian Opens, seven Wimbledons, three U.S. Opens, three French Opens. The meaning of that is five. So it's kind of like, you know, it allow it, it keeps like the one tournament, the one surface from dominating. And the way Nadal is 14, four, two, and two. So his meaning is like three. So it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, his typical, like across, you know, across, I, I think this is an exa example. If you want to kind of, again, talk to, I think Djokovic's kind of versatility across surfaces. Yeah. That's a really quick way only of kind player, of doing Another it. one, which is very related to the median, of course, Shane, he's the only player now to win each one at least three times. Yeah. So yeah. That's another metric that you could use. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, Shane, lovely. And thank you for the simplicity of aggregating these things, because usually, you know, we, we're going to talk about ridiculously sophisticated models in the second half of the show, but that sometimes the simple ones are, are all you need. By the way, this That's reminds what you me of said, quickly. The ELO ratings do have him, I think at age 26, Djokovic being the highest rated of all time. As a matter of fact, as I remember it, the next really? one after that, it might be John McEnroe. This is based on ELO ratings. It was, I just, I'm just recollecting from, we talked about this maybe six weeks ago or eight weeks mm -hmm. ago, um, but Djokovic is clearly also the highest based on ELO ratings as well. So, but that's a little funny because it's just peak, right? So that's just ELO at a moment, at a moment in time, he has the highest number. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you'd need some way of saying 
integrating that over a career. Maybe Shane can give us a, a back of the envelope heuristic for doing that, integrating the duration. Actually, uh, I just really want to just one last thing about tennis, his non-stationarity. So I, I'm sure you guys know this or maybe don't in his first, I know it's a, it's a made up cut point, but he was nine and seven in his first um, 16 majors. And I think in the last 16, that's the first 16 finals. In the last 16 finals, he's 14 and two. So, Jeez. so competition, that, right? Well, changes in competition. Yeah, yeah. So, Adi, what many people will say, and it's the same criticism you could give to Federer. Federer chomped up a lot of majors before Nadal and Djokovic ever hit the scene. Djokovic is going to chomp up a lot of majors when Federer's clearly retired, but hasn't been the old Federer for six, seven years. Djokovic, Nadal has, you know, has been okay, but he's worn down. So when Djokovic does get to 28 to 30, which he might, people will make that argument that at the end of his career, there's not been the same quality of talent. But the same thing people could say about Federer at the beginning of his career. I think Shane's made that argument before. Federer in his first four or five years won seven or eight when Nadal and Djokovic weren't even pros. So worth pointing out, the counter argument to that is just head to head. Though they, again, they're not at the exact same point in their career or anything like that. But the fact that Djokovic also dominates Nadal head to dead, or at least beats him. 30-29, but yeah. We had we had a we had a guest we had a listener give us some analysis on tennis on a question that we asked maybe six months ago, where we said the the paths to these Grand Slam wins are not equal, and maybe we should adjust for the competition they face. Like you said, you said you know Federer won a play when Nadal got knocked out freakishly. It's a lot easier to win in Paris if you don't have to play Nadal. So. We had a guest who did this analysis, and my recollection of it is that Djokovic came out the best in this analysis. If you look at something like performance over expected, given this, given the strength of opposition, essentially. The last note I want to make is I, I really like it's a it's a neat feature of golf, actually. That I mean, of tennis, that you've got these different surfaces, and so it does call the question of versatility. And the way, and, and so I love the challenge of aggregating, but also just it's nice to say we want to say the greatest player was was versatile. And it reminds me a little of poker, where I, I I'm not a poker aficionado, but my understanding is that the real poker players want to play multiple games, even though you know all this all the celebrity and all the TV is around Hold'em, but they really have respect for people who can play and are good, top of the world at multiple games. All right, guys. Uh, what else have we got going on? We've got a little, uh, a little, one more sport to wrap up their spring championship, the NHL, and the Golden Knights could do it tonight. Game, game six, game six, game five, five game five, game again. five. again, again with the Florida team, only one win going into game five. Stanley Cup will be in attendance, um, and the Panthers might be down their best player, their clutch player. We don't know. Game time decision on him. Shane, resident hockey expert any thoughts on the panthers golden knights yeah i mean you know it does look like the panthers magic has kind of worn off or hit a brick wall or whatever basically they ran up and up against an even hotter goaltender we kind of i think they've gotten a little exposed in this series we've we, we saw all along of this run that they've been pretty much carried by the kind of hot goaltender that we often see improbable teams carried by Bobrovsky was amazing for them but he's had a rough finals, partly because they've been playing almost terrible, uh, almost no defense in front of him. And now Kachuk is down. So it does looking pretty slim for Florida. At the same time, they've already come back from 3-1 this playoffs in the first round against the best regular season team of all time. So, you know. Well, you know, I'm going to ask Shane. I think you know what question I'm about to ask. I always ask. Matter of fact, I don't know why I always ask you. I could ask any of us. But let's just say the baseline probability of coming back is, I don't know, 3%, 2%, 3%, whatever the number is coming back from 3 1. How much do you raise that for the fact that they just did it against the best regular season team of all time. Does it make, does that carry any weight for you? Or that's just a great narrative. Like they did it before this year against the Bruins. Of course they can do it again. I'll, I mean, actually it looks like Audie's got a thought on this. I'll let him weigh in. I just don't know where you get 3%. I mean, coming back from it's three really, to one. It's really low. That's too low, Eric. It's, the base, it's too low. No, one in eight. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Shane. It's a coin flip. 
<laughs> I think that might, I think that might be below the empirical baseline. No, I, I think that I thought I saw that was the empirical. Oh, base. is it? Yeah, it's happened like thirty-two times in all across okay, so all that, so series. I'm not sure error. the denominator though. Yeah, the the bottom line is is that there are two things that typically happen when you go up three to one. There's one team is a lot better than the other, which means that the one who's down three to one is a, a long shot because they don't have a fifty percent chance of winning each game. Or it's just noise, because there aren't that many times that this happens, and therefore we don't have a good empirical estimate. I'm going to ask you guys, I, I don't imagine it's lower than 10%. So that would be my guess, which is one in, one in eight. I, I would put it lower than 10%. Really? I, I, th- I, I, think, I think less than one out of 10 series that go up 3-1 in hockey have a comeback like that. No, but, I, don't mean, I don't mean historically. I mean this particular series. What would oh, you oh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, probably I, I would kind of like, you know, maybe a, 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 in answer to Eric's original question, that the fact that this particular Florida Panthers team has done it already in this playoff run does up kind of, you know, whatever my, you know, subjective odds are for that. So I, I, would, know, yeah, guys, I would sort of like I mean, maybe I've got this wrong, but 0.4 cubed is about 6.4 percent. Mm-hmm. So even if you believe that they've got a 40% chance each to win the next three games, that that puts the probability. I understand that, but that puts it at 6%, 67%. So I'm saying it's under 10% in my view. And I was asking more of a statistical question. If, you know, if you think it's, let's even just say you believe my number 0.4 cubed. So that's 6.4%. Do you, how much would you jack that up? Because they already did it this year against a really strong team. Would you go up to 7%? Is it a 10% lift, 20% lift, or it's just hard? No, I I mean, not noticeable. Not noticeable. In in the sense that, like, 7% versus 10%, I mean, maybe, sure. But, I mean, you know, we're not going to – it's not going to – that's too subtle, I think, of a a probabilistic difference where we're going to be able to kind of – you know, I mean, across all kind of scenarios like this, I, I don't, I don't think I would jack it up by too much. But it's going to certainly it it's going to move around. It's going to move around dramatically by whether Kachuk comes back or not, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That just feels like he. Not only is he, you know, his skill, but he's he seems to be kind of the heart of the team. So you guys are not a believer, given we just talked about the NBA. You guys are not a believer in what Jimmy Butler said when they played. I forget who they came back against the Celtics or whatever it was. Like, don't give us one. So you, you're not you're not a Nuggets believer. Gave one. What? Nuggets gave him one. <laughs> but, but wait, no, but I meant down three to one. I just meant if it gets to three oh. to two. If it gets to three to two. It's worth noting think- that I, I, I can't give you rates, but it's worth noting that like, you know, there, there's a list. Uh, I, I saw some lists on Wikipedia where I got this 32 from of teams that have come back down from three one in uh, at the NHL playoffs. The list is almost lo- as long of teams that have come back from down three one to tie it at three three and then lose that final game. So <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't. It's not clear. There's any momentum to kind of you know once you get to three three, having gotten there for be a comeback. I'm not sure that actually gives you anything either. Just just to square the conversation, the Vegas has it at. I don't mean Vegas the night. I mean the the odds makers um, are six point six if you want to bet on Vegas and ten point five percent if you want to bet on the Panthers. So that's pretty okay, so somewhere in between really- there for the objective. So maybe collectively we ended up at about the Vegas numbers because Adi and I were floating around 10 and it sounds like Eric and Shane were floating around six. And um, so we end up in about the same place. Odds are against these guys. And it makes me sad because these Florida teams gave us such a good run the last month or two. And, you know, I'm thinking last night when the game was over, I'm like, these poor heat, I mean, yeah. we're, we're they're just not going to be having not gotten it done despite all that they accomplished, which was absolutely remarkable, they will not be remembered as well because they didn't get the last little piece done. And the same with the Panthers. The Panthers have been on the exact same streak. It's just been unbelievable. Maybe not quite as good, except they had a higher peak knocking off the Bruins. And now if they don't get it done, it's going to be not all for naught, but in the direction of all for naught. Yeah, no, and I, I want to kind of take a step back at that historical perspective and talk a bit more about the Golden Knights in the sense of, you know, they've been in existence now for six seasons. People forget, you know, and they've been to the conference finals three out of those six, yeah, and to the cup finals two out of those. Six. I mean, that's just incredible run for the start of 
for I mean, both expansion teams actually most both recent expansion teams actually kind of, but that's just unbelievable. The the only team that was quicker to win a Stanley Cup, assuming they do win the Stanley Cup, the only team that was quicker to win a Stanley Cup, you know, f- after expansion was the Edmonton Oilers in 1983. Can you guess who they had to help them? That I mean, it was Gretzky, right? So the yeah. fact that the Knights are doing this without any kind of real superstars, I think, is real is interesting. Well, that, uh, it, it raises the question of attribution then my memory is that they did really well in the in the expansion draft because the rules were somehow screwed up like the league had to change the expansion draft because it went so well for them um but i don't remember the details and i don't know anything about the front office i generally want to credit owners and front offices for that kind of record but i i'm naive certainly because they, they've done well both with the expansion draft and the subsequent draft so i do think right. you know we are okay. seeing a well-run organization yeah, your your question, Cade, went exactly where I was going to go, which is, does this say to us something about how if I'm a bottom feeder team in the NHL right now, how long might it take me to build a winner? Like, how long did it take? I'm just asking a question. Could this be informative about the distribution of turnaround times in the NHL? Like, but, but Eric, is it, is it, not just winning it, the cup. I don't want to use just winning the cup. But like, how many years does it take? And maybe there's a difference because it's expansion versus not. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not informative at all because they got the expansion draft, which perhaps gave them a quicker jump than than could be. Um, All right. Well, let's jump over now to uh, I know a sport close to the hearts of many people in this Zoom room, baseball. I want to start the baseball conversation though, guys, real quickly. I want to start it with this athletic article that I sent around. Did y'all see this? It's long. Uh, I threw it in kind of off cycle, so maybe you didn't, but it was published June 8th, which was five days ago. Eno Saris is the author, and he he dug into, you know, why is it that strikeouts keep rising? And I just thought it was fantastic because he basically, you know, diffused the most common attributions that are made. And he, and he ends up coming to this thing that I didn't even know about, which is, the importance of batters making contact out front near the front of the plate or even beyond the front of the plate, um, as opposed to where we usually think like right in front of the batter or whatever. And that has all kinds of knock-on consequences. Most importantly, if you're trying to get a little bit ahead of it, which is apparently people are increasingly aware that this is what you need to do, you have to guess earlier. And if the speed on the pitches is going up, it's harder to guess earlier correctly. And so these are the factors that end up producing, combining to produce the strikeouts. I just thought it was fascinating. Again, y'all, y'all are deeper into it. So I'm curious your reactions, Shane and the nutty. Well, I just, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think it comes down to all these rule changes are that they're initiating are supposed to increase offense. And I think they are kind of in, in their respective lanes, but the main thing that is increasing the number of strikeouts is pitchers are throwing as hard as they possibly can at every pitch now you know, as opposed to trying to save themselves and pitching, you know, it's hitting is reactive. So I think that exactly right. I mean, you know, if they have pitchers are throwing as hard as they can, every pitch that's in, you know, because they don't have to conserve their resources uh, across a game, that's really what's probably still driving the strikeouts. So my reaction was all very interesting and a great, I love a great deep dive into baseball, but velocity is just going up just every year it goes up and strikeout rate every year it just goes up. Hard to, when you've got such a repetitive systemic change on both sides of the regression line, Y is moving up, X is moving up. How do I disentangle that with, with, from, with, from all the other things that could also be going on, which matters? And one of the things, I remember doing this some time ago with some students, that uh, selectiveness, pitch selectiveness, valuing a walk leads to more strikeouts. Why? Because you're less likely to protect the plate when, you, uh, when, when uh, it when there's two strikes, because you, you you don't mind getting the walk. Also, the idea that you got to wait for your pitch means more strikeouts because you're not going to try to if it's on the if it's on the line. You say I can't do anything with that anyway, so I'll just accept strikeout. Um, so a lot of things kind of work collectively to get to make strikeouts go up. It's hard for me to point to you know one thing, and I don't think the author says it's one thing, um, but it's but it is fascinating to really talk about how hitting the ball in front of the plate is really important to hitting the ball far. Mm-hmm. 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 And I also want to sort of point out that even with these rule changes, you know, I mean, you've got like a whole generation of players now that have come up through the whole, you know, three outcomes sort of like baseball kind of system. It's going to take a while developmentally for, you know, 
players to kind of change, like the fact that they're not going to necessarily be swinging for the fences as much as usual or whatever. I mean, I think you still have a lot of three strikeout players. I was kind of looking recently. I mean, you guys probably don't want to look at this yourselves, but some Josh Donaldson stats from this year, (laughs) his line is crazy this year. I'll just mention he's at 46 plate appearances, um, something like 15, 16 strikeouts. He's had six hits, five home runs. This is Joey Gallo all over again, right? You know, and 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 that's it's insanity. But at the same time, we haven't mentioned it. But you talk about strikeouts going up. At the same time, we've got Luis Arias hitting four hundred or nearly four hundred. Talk about a standard standard deviations farther away from what we expect. Maybe it's just intent. I mean, if you if you want to give up on the on the home run and want to work towards putting the ball in play, you can really have a high. I think even I think even more impressive. Shane, maybe you don't agree, is our own Phillies. Kyle Schwarber's hitting 172 with 17 home runs and 35 RBIs. And he's got, out of his 40 hits, he's got 17 home runs. So I don't know. That's not so bad. And, you know, he's on target for multiplied by two and a half. He's on target for 45 home runs and 90 to 100 RBIs. I don't know if he hits 40 and drives in 100 and bats 172. I'm not sure the Phillies are going to be that upset with him. Matter of fact, re-sign the guy. Yeah. 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 And I mean, he's definitely the kind of classic, you know, you want to be looking at that guy's on base versus batting average. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that definitely is the contribution. It is have to be batting things like lead off and to have that kind of batting average is not ideal. Deal, but I mean, certainly, <laughs> no, he, no, I, I, idea. you know, I wouldn't kick him off the team. I, he's one of my favorite players. Um, I also think I, I, I want to kind of, since we're talking baseball, I want to kind of give a mea culpa to my Yankees boys here. Um, because how, how many times last season did I go off on how should, you know, Judge shouldn't be the MVP because Otani's like, you know, this unicorn <laughs> baseball player, but he just Judge has convinced a judge is a most valuable player. Because looking at what the Yankees, the Yankees, so the Yankees are with Judge playing, are the seventh best off offense in Major League Baseball. Without Judge playing, they're actually the worst. Like like they three point four runs a game without Judge, four point nine runs per game with Judge. That's incredible. It's, you know, and also I'd love to bring this back on a later show because I have some new research that talks about it. But starting pitchers just don't pitch enough to accumulate that much war and, and a slugger, a superstar slugger can easily hit 10 war in a year. And we haven't, we're not going to see a starting pitcher hit 10 war ever again. Not even close. Well, by what way, about sorry, pitcher is also a superstar slugger. <laughs> yeah, I know. He just happens to be. By a way, Shane has He's actually more of a slugger than he is a starting pitcher. Yeah. His Shane war has, is twice that. Shane has convinced me with his use of language, but you may not even notice what you did, Shane. You didn't say he was the most valuable player. You said he's a most valuable player. And I yeah. have to agree with that. I, I'm, you've changed my language. I'm going to call him a most valuable player from now Yeah, on. I mean, to me, it's sort of, it's like Otani to me is like, he's the, Otani's the greatest player, baseball player currently playing in Major League Baseball. But Judge might be the most valuable because we're kind of seeing this season, the kind of like, you know, with or without, usually with, Players that, you know, have great seasons, you don't get to see them without. But we're seeing kind of uh, we're seeing the effect of it. And it's dramatic. He was holding that t- that lineup together next last season. I guess he was, you know, he's kind of was, you know, sliding to hold it together this season, too. Guys, in 20 seconds, any words on the Diamondbacks or Pirates? A couple of surprising division leaders. I'm excited to hear about these guys. It gives me somebody to pull for. Outside of the American League East, the middle of the American League East, any comments on the D-backs or the Pirates? I think the Pirates is more sustainable just because the NL Central is. I don't see teams like the Dodgers challenging in the NL Central. Yep, Shane got my twenty seconds. I agree. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. In the second half, we have an interview. We're going to talk golf, golf analytics, U.S. Open. Big tournament coming up this weekend. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. We are going in this half to do an interview segment. We are delighted to have Matt Corshane back with us. Matt was with us sometime. We're trying to come up sometime, maybe two years or so ago. He is the co-founder of Data Golf. Um, fantastic website. 
for all things golf, especially all things golf analytics. He co-founded this website with his brother, Will, back in 2016, and it's grown significantly. We use it regularly. We use it on the show to talk through things, and some of which we'll probably get into. But Matt, we're always happy to have a chance to talk to you guys. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Looking forward to it. You guys are up in Canada, right? Or at least you're from Canada. Am I remembering that right? Are you there now? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we're based out of Toronto. Yeah. Are you lamenting yet another Stanley Cup without Canada representation? How How's that thing going down? Uh, well, I grew up in Ottawa, so Leafs are not – I'm happy to see them lose. So, uh, <laughs> But, yeah, Canada in general has not won a cup in forever, but I have no sympathy for the Leafs fans. So. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, man, let's talk golf. It's a very got- common Canadian. Uh, I think that's a very common Canadian uh, attitude. Yeah. Yeah. So as many Leafs fan as are overrunning Toronto, there's a bunch of Leafs haters there as well. Is that, is that it? Got it. All right. I understand. Um, it reminds me of a baseball team in a major North American city that we speak of on occasion. All right, Matt. Let's talk U.S. Open. We've got the U.S. Open this week in Los Angeles, Los Angeles Country Club. We also have some, I don't know, world-shaking developments in the world of golf that we can talk about some. It's not really for analytics, but it's, you know, in the middle of everything. Those things come together because this major is one of the few times that we see the live golfers playing, competing against the PGA golfers and the uh, European Tour, for that matter. What are your thoughts from, you know, just at the high level or at the outset about what we'll see in Los Angeles beginning Thursday? Um, well, yeah, so it's at LA Country Club, which is a new course for professionals. We have, like, we have no data on it. Um, there was a, an, like a, there's been amateur events there. There's a bit of a narrative going around this week with Max Homa, who um, he has the course record 61. He won the Pac-12 champs there when he was in college. So the betting market is actually super high on home compared to us. Um, but like high level this week, I think this does seem like it's always a guessing game, but it does seem like a bit of a different course than normal. Normally U.S. Opens are, you probably think of Torrey Pines, long, <clears throat> narrow fairways, deep rough. Um, this week, like the architecture buffs on golf Twitter, like they're all about this course. Everybody's raving about it. So like it should be from an entertainment standpoint, it should be really good. Um, Matt, what are the architecture buffs raving about? What's what's unique about this setup? Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're all about their big thing is strategy and giving players options. Um, that's what they like to see with golf courses. So, like, there's a whole like whole six at LA uh, Country Club is this short par four that it's like a sharp dog leg right. It is drivable, but it's got a an angled green, and so depending on where the pin is, you might hit it in different spots. Um, and so I think, I guess, and LA is like super undulating too. Um, and so you'd contrast that with Torrey Pines again, where there's, it's pretty much just take driver, bomb it straight. If you hit in the rough, gouge it out of the rough. Um, so they think it's going to play a bit different, but it's still, the USGA is still, it's still going to be a US Open. I imagine it's going to, it's, it's going to play tough. Um, the rough, I don't know exactly how tough it's going to be, but I think it'll, it depends on the conditions. They're trying to get it firm too. So it, it should still be a U.S. Open course, I think. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about the Max Homa narrative. You said he has a course record. You said he won the Pac-12 out there when he was in college. Um, but you also said you're not as big on him. It, where, where do you have Homa? So one of the things that Data Golf does is you have your own world rankings, essentially. You also have model predictions for any given tournament. Where do you have Homa? Setting aside the tournament, the course, whatever adjustments you make for that, just in general, what is your model thinking about Homa these days? Yeah, I mean, Homa, he's had like a pretty mediocre last three months. So now he's down to 17th in our rankings. And yeah, that's just based on a neutral course. And that's only using round scores. It's not using any more predictive stuff. Like we, obviously we have shot level data. You can improve predictions using that. But so that's just using round scores. He's down to 17th. He was up to maybe as high as like seventh earlier. Um, so he hasn't been playing great. And then the other thing with Homa is he's one of the worst performers relative to expectation in majors he really has no um yeah like he's i mean he's kind of burst onto the scene the last three years he's really kind of become an elite player but again we're always comparing to his baseline to evaluate how well he's played in majors and he's yeah we have a we have a plot that just has like the x-axis is performance in non-majors 
y-axis is major performance and home is like a big he's a big outlier i think he's he's got one top 40 in his major championship career so and me and we will probably get to this but major championship performance is reasonably predictive of future major championship performance like with brooks um so that's another thing going against home yeah so it's it's interesting the like the betting markets at least at the softer sports books are really high on home Okay, so hold on, Matt, Eric's going to jump in here in a sec, but I've got to ask one follow-up question because we often talk about clutch performance here and whether it exists and how it varies across sports. Brooks Kepka is hard to dismiss on that front um, as you know, some people maybe really step up in these moments. In your analysis, other than Kepka, who else should we think of as departing from expected, maybe in either direction? Who else outperforms or underperforms notably? in your analysis in major tournaments? Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's names that are going to be familiar. Like Spieth is a huge major championship overperformer. Uh, Reed, Fowler, Phil. I mean, Scheffler's been good in his short career. Even guys, like, uh, maybe guys you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like Xander Shoffley has played really well in majors. He obviously hasn't won one, but he's he's played really well in majors. I mean, most top guys, and honestly, part of this is uh, is probably course fit because most major championship courses are uh, are uh, are new courses, so we might not be capturing the fit that well. And like when we're comparing performance relative to expectation, that fit part of it isn't in the expectation. So some of it is that, but it's also just I think which would be would fit with the intuition or narrative based thinking is like the top players do perform better in majors. Like it's a high pressure environment and like the guys in their first major, it's, they do struggle when the data backs it up. So Matt, you mentioned that Homa was around 17th, but could you give us a sense of like, whether it's in terms of win probability or expected strokes per round, like what's the difference between let's say someone ranked first and someone ranked 20th in your ranking. So we talking about, could it be a shot around? Like, our, you know, it would be, you know, if they all make the cut, we would expect one, the 20th place person end up four shots behind, or what's the win probability ratio of the top golfer to the 20th golfer. Can you give us just some sense of how big an effect we're talking about in golf? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's important. Uh, so we, our rankings are, we present them as strokes per round better than an average PGA Tour player. Although with Liv now coming onto the scene, we've had to sort of, so the PGA Tour fields have weakened a bit. So we've had to kind of correct our baseline, but that doesn't really matter. It's all just a relative comparison. So usually the baseline I like to use and think about is like a top five player in the world is usually around in any given year is usually around two shots better per round than the average PGA Tour player. Um, So a shot is a lot. A stroke per round is like, that's going to be the difference between right now in our rankings, uh, the yeah there's like that can be that can be 60 50 ranking places or more depending where you are um but then yeah at the same time like scheffler we we have scheffler as the best player in the world and he's like we have his skill at 2.7 strokes per round better than average pj tour player and he's a full shot better than the seventh ranked player in the world in victor hovland so there's big gaps can open up too like right now there's kind of like scheffler rom and rory had sort of they had a lot of separation there for a while. And just one quick follow-up to that. What's the standard error of measurement? So like, um, can you give us a sense of like, is one or two shots? Like, you know, is, uh, I, I kind of follow this. I remember in Tiger's Peak, he was averaging like, I don't know, 69 around or something like that. So are scores 70 plus or minus two? So is like one stroke, yeah. like a half a standard deviation or how big are we talking about here? Or maybe what I'm asking is how does it convert to win probabilities or probability I, A beats B? Can I just follow up real quickly on that? Because I, I do think that would be really helpful given how much variance there is in golf to make that translation. Like when, when we talk about a guy being, um, you know, 17th versus first or whatever, what does that mean for probability of winning or probability of top five or something like that? And now you may not be able to do that real time, Matt, but that's that I, I agree with Eric. That's the that's a helpful translation of possible. Yeah. And I guess maybe something that I was kind of ask about it, just kind of talking about effect sizes and variation. You talk about the variation between the number one player and the like number 20 player. How much you also but you also talked about kind of course fit being a big factor. 
what's kind of what's the effect size that you can kind of see on course fit like you know a particular golfer from their kind of best course fit to their worst course fit how many strokes kind of like you know assuming like 18 hole course at both i mean how many strokes are we kind of talking there yeah yeah so yeah i can give a quick breakdown of that so the the first thing about the the round to round variance so just taking like the residual variance, let's say. So once just variation, whatever deviations from our best predictions, it's usually around like uh, the typical tour course, like 2.8 strokes per round. So it's, yeah, it's way bigger than um, typical difference. most differences between players. So like I could do it quickly on our site now. Like I'm trying to think if two players, it would be a good way to present things like the win, the 18 hole win probability for a, a player who's one shot better than another right. player. I would guess it's like, 65 percent or something or six honestly it might be lower than that but but anyway the number is yeah around 2.8 for round to round variance and then like the course fit stuff um like a huge course fit adjustment would be like a half shot i think the biggest ones in our data are when they go to uh, uh el chameleon which is in mexico now i actually live actually played an event there and there are guys there it's a it's a course that's carved out of the bush and it so it really favors accurate players and the biggest adjustments there will be a shot so a shot per round for a guy who just hits a dead straight and well relatively wow. straight and um and doesn't hit it far and yeah so those are huge like when we first started and we were more active and combative on twitter um i think different times twitter wasn't as bad back then uh we would we were big anti-course fit and anti-course history but but now and it's kind of a thing where it's like most of the time so like if you looked at all of our data uh, across all courses, like the standard deviation and the course fit adjustments would be like small. It'd be like maybe like 0.1 or maybe like point or even, I mean, that means there's t- a 10 Sigma event happening. Maybe it's a bit bigger, but it's, they're pretty small and same with course history, but it's sort of a thing where like when it does matter, it, it can matter a lot. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. What, Eric, I want to get to you a bit real quickly. What does that mean for what you do with the Los Angeles country club? Because you said you don't have any history there. So, so is it one of these where you're like, well, I hope it's one of these point ones. It doesn't matter very much. Or do you try to make some other kind of crude adjustment? Yeah. So we'll look at the scorecard and we'll make some crude adjustments based off of that. But scorecard can be like, if the course plays really firm this week, then because it's a long course on the card, there's some like 280 yard par threes. There's uh, a bunch of 500 yard par fours, but they're not going to play it all the way back every day. So, but we made some small adjustments based on the scorecard. And then also just, looking at we have like a blog post on our site just looking at the typical fit of each major championship at least other than augusta the ones that rotate around courses and yeah. so but in general we're not doing much this week i think we're we're emphasizing distance a bit and under emphasizing accuracy a bit but we we're not going to take a huge stand and honestly that's partly because of what people use our website for like we don't want to take a huge stand on even if we thought that this course really was going to favor distance it's i don't really want to be making people that are betting using your stuff, like I don't really want them to be making all these bets based off what's essentially a guess from us. So it's pretty generic this week. Yep. Got it. So Matt, this is kind of a, it's one question, but it's, it's not got three parts, but it's got three connections to what I think you do. So this is a data golf live kind of statistics question. So let's say you have golfers that have never played the Los Angeles country club. Let's say there's never been an event there. So I can imagine a lot of things you could do. One is you could take course characteristics and try to use course characteristics to predict the difficulty or how a given player. So Shane Jensen plays well on this types, of course. He's never played this course before, but he's played well on this type. Another could be Shane Jensen has never played this course, but Shane Jensen has played other players who have played this course. That would be another way to do it. So how do you make projections in in some sense, the classic statistical problem when you have no data for a certain player playing a particular course, kind of how do you think of that? You can get into, as far as we're concerned, we're an analytics show, you could tell us the technical details, but I'm just interested philosophically. And the reason it relates to Live is before this merger had happened, we may have ended up with a day where Live golfers and PGA players never really play against each other much, but they play similar courses or sometimes they play against each other. That's why it's related. So I'm just wondering philosophically how you deal with that. Yeah, so what we do for course fit is just, we, we look at how different player characteristics and those characteristics characteristics are like driving distance, driving accuracy, and then approach 
uh, around the green and putting skill. We, for all the courses in our data, we just look at how players, how those skill sets correlated or how those characteristics correlated with performance of that course. And so that takes care of the problem of if a new player comes along that hasn't played a given course, then it's fine. We know his characteristics. We can guess what his course fit's going to be. If it's a new course like this week, we're not really, honestly, you could. I think it would make a good academic paper. I think it's a lot of work that, so if we were going to, yeah, do what you said and say, okay, this course has uh, these characteristics and sort of these other courses. And so we're going to sort of assume they're going to play similar. I think, yeah, that could probably work. Like with golf, there's so much noise that you always underestimate how much data you need to say anything useful. Um, I think you, you, I mean, honestly, we kind of are doing that in the sense that we're using the most basic characteristics of just the length of the hole. Um, I think when people normally they think of golf and they realize that there's this shot level data out there, they immediately think like, Oh, you can be mapping where the bunkers are and you can like do all these things. And it's like, yeah, you, you can do all those things, but if your goal ultimately is like predicting at the end of the day, which ours is for the most part, it's, I don't know, a lot of times it's a lot of work for a lot of nothing. So it's, yeah. So we're, we're not really doing much on that front. And then just to your point on the live player getting siloed. Yeah, that would, that would kind of be, yeah, we couldn't do that basically. Like we, our model relies on interaction between the two tours because it's all a relative thing. And so if they got siloed, we wouldn't be be able to compare them that well. All right. Interesting. And, you know, by, by the way, Matt, we, we would be big fans of the approach you're taking and the limits of what you're trying to do and not trying to be too um, complex in those models. So I, we appreciate the advocacy for the approach you're taking. I think I can speak for us in saying that. Um, we are going to let you go. Uh, very much appreciate making time for us, especially on a major week. Matt, we will talk with you more down the road, but wish you the best with a big week of the year. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Matt Corshane, co-founder of Data Golf. It's a great website for all things golf analytics. They really like Scotty Scheffler this week, by the way, considerably. They like the big three that everyone loves, Scheffler, Rahm, and McElroy, but they really like Scotty. That has been Wharton Moneyball. That's a full one hour on sports analytics coming to you via Zoom. We want to thank the from the whole crew here, Eric, Shane, Adi, and Cade. We want to thank Matty D for running the show as always. Dion Simpkins, associate boss man. And thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. 